0: Following the breakup of the Pixies, Kim Deal put all her energy into her side project, The Breeders. Their debut single, Cannonball, supposedly about Pixies singer Frank Black, only peaked at number 44 on the Billboard charts, but has continued to be one of the defining songs of the 90s. This week, we're joined by May guitarist Zach Gehring to decide if the Breeders brought the one-hit thunder, or if we are both cuckoo cannonballs for loving them so much. Crash. On the
1: last flash. One hit is all you
0: need to make the money guaranteed. And you can live off royalties forever. And it makes you wonder, is it just a blunder? Or is it one Hey, Zach, we're going to talk about the Breeders' Cannonball.
2: Yes, uh, I'm really excited uh, to talk about Cannonball by the Breeders.
0: Dude, we are around the same age, so we both probably had the same experience. I love where this song takes me. It takes me back to such a cool time. Not only like in life, but it was a very angsty time in life. But for music, 1993, 1994... Oh, man. Such a good time, man. It
2: was a great year. Um, first of all, I want to ask, I want to clarify, I want to confirm. How old are you? I'm 39. 39. Okay, I'm 38. So we must have both been, 93 was middle school for us, right? Yeah,
0: 8th, eighth, eighth, ninth grade, somewhere around there. I, I remember this song being a buzz clip on MTV.
2: Okay, yeah, the song came out in August of 93, so that would have been the opening of our senior year?
0: Of middle school.
2: Middle, oh, yeah. <laughs> Eighth grade,
0: the senior yes. year of middle school. Yes, <laughs> senior year oh. of middle school. Uh, yeah, that's what I always when – I, when I refer to senior year, I'm always talking about senior year oh. of middle school. <laughs>
2: Eighth grade, here's a year.
0: But, dude, could any other time other than, like, 1993, 1994, could a song like Cannonball be a hit?
2: Well, that's what I've been thinking on since we decided to do this podcast and we selected a song just how the 90s um, environment was in this kind of transitional period because you had a lot of the indie music and quote-unquote underground music kind of coming to the surface and and kind of getting some daylight with records like DGC and Geffen. And I think this is a prime example of what was happening in that era. I think another one I always think on is like The Melvins and um, Stoner Witch. Just listen, that, that record came out on Atlantic, and I know we're not talking about The Melvins today, but just the way it sounds, it's just one of these things where – and the Breeders Cannonball, similarly, that would never fly um, today in any kind of mainstream space. And I think that's what's so amazing about the 90s is that you had this very, very open opportunity for a lot of really rad bands, especially rock bands. I know you and I are rock guys, so it was amazing.
0: Yeah, I mean, dude, the I guess it was – Probably primarily Nirvana, but probably the entire Seattle resurgence, or not resurgence, kind of surgeons of music (laughs) that kind of opened the door at every major record label to sign such strange bands, such like, and what other other time is Ween going to sign to a major label off of a four-track recording? And things like that were happening. And that's so cool. Yeah.
2: I'm just thinking about Butthole Surfers, too, because that band was just wild in the 80s. And then when they had mainstream recognition, it was in the 90s. And that's another thing. We're just like, a band like Butthole Surfers to have mainstream recognition, it just speaks. Again, Electric uh, Electric Larryland was the record. That was in 96. So it's a little bit later than Cannonball, but still in this era of really rad exploration uh, and alternative music.
0: Right. and And what was crazy, too, is like now we all know things have changed minus maybe for like Taylor Swift and people like that. But for the most part, like now, if you're going to do an independent record, you're, you're doing it on a shoestring budget Mm -hmm. and, and you know, you don't have the luxury of getting million dollar budgets to make albums and people aren't going to the record store and buying the physical copies of your album minus some, collectible vinyl and stuff like that but this is still like that was probably the biggest era for that because you think of like some of the albums that came out in the 90s that went on to be some of the biggest selling album like for example Alanis, i think Alanis morissette uh jagged little pill is like one of the top selling albums of all time
2: i did this uh I looked up 1993 albums, albums that were released in 93, um, same year as Last Splash was released, which is what Cannonball is on, the Breeders right. record. And it's, it's insane, this list. Not only have a fraction of this list, and I focused on, on rock music, um, so it's not even getting into hip-hop or any other genre, but Tool, Undertow came out, Radiohead's Pablo Honey came out, Liz Phair's Exile and Guyville came out, Cat and Crows, nice. August and Everything After Nirvana and Uteros came out, um, Pearl Graham's Versus came out Little Sir Cleo I could go on
0: Damn That's so many good ones Even Right there Already That's so m- You just named like Three of the most Iconic albums Like in In my life
2: in the la- Yeah in my life I mean that's not even I mean Fugazi's And on the Killtaker Came out that year The Cranberries All's Breaking Things Came out So even the punk rock More Like the scene That was still kind of Just un- underneath This kind of Blossoming Like alternative rock scene That went mainstream yeah, just so many records. A Tribe Called Quest's Midnight Marauders came out. I, I marked that one just because I'm a big Tribe fan. But it's just a crazy year. And I think, and I was thinking about this, that Cannonball is like an essential type of 90s rock track to me, both in the way it's kind of mixed, the way the, the song is uh, structured. And the video was directed by Spike Jones and Kim Gordon. I mean, that's, yeah. like, that's like a picture of a, a perfect that, that- 90s thing. That is not
0: that is the 90s encapsulated into one song and music video. Like if you wanted if you wanted to tell somebody what the 90s were like, you could just be like, "Okay, watch this video. This is what and it was it, like. There was a bowling ball just rolling through the entire 90s." And, it, <laughs> and this is what everything looked like. This is what everyone dressed like.
2: Exactly. Uh, it's like a stylistic snapshot of yeah. of the 90s both sonically and like the video and, you know, everything about it. So and the band was made up of so many heavy hitters. Yeah, Obviously, Kim Deal. On the first record, I think the drummer from Slint was in the band. Just like uh-huh. all these uh, members of very influential indie rock bands that we don't think about when we think about the Breeders um, necessarily, or, or I don't. I should speak for myself. But they're all informed and a part of this kind of music
3: group.
0: Kim Deal, for anyone listening from the Pixies, you know, this. this might be one of those controversial things to say. I feel like I say a lot of these kind of things on this podcast, but I think I like the breeders more than I like the pixies. And I, I know that that that's really going out on a limb, but like this album last splash. I, I don't know if you, if you were like into the album as a whole at the time when it was out, but I loved this album <laughs> and it, it was so almost avant-garde in certain ways. Like there were songs that were almost, not songs <laughs> there were more like uh, sounds with like talking over them and things like that I, I i don't know just such a cool album and such a i'm so glad that i was like into this album when i was 13 and 14 years old because i could have very easily been into like dude think about this we're around the same age i talked mm-hmm. to i talked to people about this recently we were at an influential an influential age for music at a time when music was so cool. but if we were five years older, we may have been listening to some bullshit like white snake or something or some mm-hmm. kind of like hair metal, or if we were five years younger, we may have been listening to like the radio rock from the late nineties like we we may have been like influenced by like vertical horizon or something no, And i'm it- not I'm not talking shit, but like we were very lucky to be surrounded by like people that were taking artistic chances and making wild music and not just, not just conforming to what was popular at the time.
2: Yeah. I think it was a very, the early nineties, like we, we can maybe even go 88, 89, late eighties into early, early to mid nineties was a very transitional period. You had a new map, like a new territory being developed. Um, and it really didn't last that long. I feel like it burned out, at least in the mainstream sense. I don't know if it's quickly or not when you're speaking of the industry and how fast um, trends move. But I feel like it's this is very specific era of the 90s where this was allowed to happen. And then because it was so... There's like this kind of weird space here where you get really talented artists doing really cool things that sound easy. And by that, I mean, a lot of that stuff sounds like they're just kind of like this kind of uh, hodgepodge, kind of careless approach to creating silly things. And when you get artists on the back end of this era, combined with a very hungry industry like trying to find the next nirvana and find the next whatever you had this wake the style of music that attempted to continue what was being done in the early 90s but it was kind of falling short in a lot of ways and eventually you end up with creed and Nickelback, and those are easy targets but i think that's this kind of hangover right from what was able to be done in a very very amazing and, and a meaningful way in the early 90s so when you think about a band like, obviously, the the biggest culprit in the Creed sense is going to be Pearl Jam because Versus came out in '93, and you have this very ungraceful decline in terms of rock music uh, in the late '90s into the the 2000s, all on the back of uh, the alternative music scene in the '90s when it kind of like surfaced.
0: Yeah, it's interesting you you bring up Pearl Jam because I know you're a big Pearl Jam fan, mm-hmm. and. You know, what people, what rock bands that followed Pearl Jam that got popular late, I think the late 90s. Yeah, you brought up, you brought up Creed and and of course Nickelback, the Easy Targets. But what, what's crazy is what those bands took away from Pearl Jam wasn't the like wildly inventive songwriting (laughs) and shit. What they took away from them was.
2: Yeah, this vocal styling that was only on like maybe one and a half records of Pearl Jam's whole discography. One a right. voice that Eddie quickly moved away from.
0: Right. It's such a shame that that's what that's what came out of this and and not like the crazy like vitality. What a what yeah. a like amazing like from the songs to the. I don't know every everything about it. The freaking layout of the album, yeah, is, like every, everything about it is like incredible. But yet, yeah, that's what we get. That's what we get later is like people trying to knock off the the butt rock uh, <laughs> voice or whatever you want to call that thing. But back to the Breeders yes. in this album. Exactly what you were saying is an album like Last Splash. Sounds like to the untrained person or or someone like it just sounds like people like having fun in their garage and like doing whatever. But then when when I look and maybe that's what I thought at the time. But now when I look back at that, I'm like, these songs wouldn't be easy to write. And, And finding these tones and finding the this like the way this like sounds warm and it sounds like they're getting like these crazy sounds and like. And it sounds lo-fi, but like, okay, if that's easy to do, then go, go right now, go record something that sounds like that. And, and you'll find that it's not, it's not easy to do that. And what they did was incredible. Yeah.
2: You wonder, I mean, you and I have both been in the studio in various contexts over in uh, various levels of availability of gear. Right, Right. So some some studios have less gear, some studios have more gear. And you spend time in the studio trying to get a certain tone. And a lot of these tones for us, at least in my experience, has been referenced on the 90s and some of the guitar tones that were achieved in that era. Particularly, though, I mean, uh, the Breeders and Cannonball is a great example. The tones are really rad uh, on that record. So you wonder, as much effort as artists do put into finding tones they want in the studio, the way the guitar sounds or the way the drums sound, you know how difficult it is and you have this kind of really weird category of lo-fi come out. And what does that mean, right? It's You're trying to accomplish something that at least in terms of how people talk about it is a product of low budgets, right? But we're we're in these spaces now, trying to mimic right. these guitar tones that we think of being lo-fi or sounding accidental, sounding like they just put a mic up and got lucky. But I wonder how much they were thinking about that. Uh, in the time being, I'm I'm looking at the uh, personnel for Last Splash right now, and Kim Deal produced it. This guy named Sean Leonard, who I don't know, uh, was the engineer. Um, as far as uh, as well as Mark Freeberg, freeguard So. Not to get too nerdy, but I'm just looking at this list of personnel, Like, how much were they involved in achieving these really rad sounds um, that ended up being on this record? You know, it's crazy. The lo-fi as a, as a category of sound is interesting, just because it's spoken about as if it was a result of low budgets, um, maybe inexperience in the, in the garage, so to speak. Um, but now you have bands post that era that are trying to achieve. That sound uh, to the degree that it becomes like this kind of descriptive genre, right? Right. And I think that's really interesting to me because now we're trying to spend so much time getting these tones um, and these sounds that a lot of ways are spoken about as if they're accidental or just kind of on the fly. And I think that's really interesting and in how rich these tones coming out of the 90s were in these songs.
0: Right. And you know, one of the guys, the number one guy I think of who didn't produce this album, but I do believe he produced some stuff. Oh, mm-hmm. uh, Yeah, he produced Pod. Steve Albini. I feel mm-hmm. like he is like the guy, like the, the definition of this. Did you guys ever, you guys didn't record a Steve Albini ever, right? You
2: no, know, my band Demons thought about it because uh, the cool thing about Steve Albini is that he's super accessible despite doing all these major influential right. records. You can know, still just... As long as he's free, he's going to go up to his space in Chicago and record you.
0: Yeah. He doesn't take points and all that kind of stuff. He's crazy. Uh, My buddy, Scott, uh, he plays in the band Zayo. And we we, we play together in this band pack, but he, Zayo recorded with Steve Albini and he told me all about it and how awesome it was. And, you know, but even when he talks about it, which I'm, you know, uh, I'm not going to like, I'll let him come on here and talk about it sometime. But basically <laughs> the point was like, like, yeah, it was like, it was a no frills type experience. It was mm-hmm. like what you'd expect. You're playing live. You're, you're not uh, fucking around like things like you and I are probably used to a lot of times yeah. in the studio, like making sure everything is perfect or whatever, which I, I, you know, with, with punchline and I'm sure, I'm sure with me too. Try not to do that these days. I feel yeah. like maybe maybe fifteen twenty years ago, you're always trying to make everything as perfect as possible. But then you start to realize you start to realize a little later on that like, okay, if it sounds too perfect, then it's going to sound like a processed mm-hmm. thing, and it's going to lose all of its actual feeling in life and you, you kind of i should i should have listened to last splash when i was a kid i should have known that <laughs> i should have known that from the start that like an album's going to be way cooler if you don't go overboard with making it perfect in mm-hmm. air quotes um,
2: well, i think we could talk forever on a different episode or, or what have you about philosophies around recording right obviously steve right. albini has a very direct and intentional approach to recording that it's that some people talk about as being philosophical, but he just does these recordings, right? And you have the other other end of the spectrum in which you can kind of go in and use all the tools at your disposal, which I'm totally fine with depending on the project, you know? So I think, you know, they did Pod with Steve Albini. Uh, uh, the Breeders did their first record, Pod, and that's the one record that um, Steve Albini speaks of fondly. Um, now speaking about like records he's done that have been really meaningful for him, was his first Breeders record called Pod. I know um, Kurt Cobain speaks very, very highly of this record as being influential to what they were doing. So for this band to influence and be a part of this movement so much, or uh, to such a um, meaningful degree, um, only to have this kind of, because this is a podcast about kind of one-hit wonders. So here's this band that was so involved in the, the cultural movement, but still like so many other bands that were in that same place, only got kind of one quote unquote hit from this era for them.
0: Right. And I want to, I do want to note real quick that one hit isn't a bad thing, Yeah, (laughs) you know, because there's a lot of, a lot of these bands, even some of the bands that got the big deals and whatever, don't have a hit. So like, it's very cool that the breeders, the breeders could have very easily been a successful indie rock, uh, more more of like underground even though they were signed mm-hmm. to a major label at that point or whatever that that they could have not had a hit but they but Cannibal was a hit. That album Last Splash went platinum. That means they sold a million copies of Last Splash, which is such a you know strange album to to do that, but it's so awesome that it did. To talk a little bit to to kind of focus the conversation on Last Splash and you know more specifically cannonball a little bit uh last splash is almost like a well cannonball is almost like a, a the title track of the album because mm-hmm. the album's title comes from the song yeah uh, and i say this all the time i'm a big fan of bands and music where that that artist or that band nothing else sounds like them mm-hmm. if if i don't know anything else that sounds like the breeders i mean maybe Maybe they sound a little bit like the Pixies because you have a, you yeah. have a member of the band, but like I, I actually prefer the breeders in that same kind of world, I suppose, but uh cannonball the bass I'm a bassist, so of course I'm like oh Dude, man. like
2: that that carries the song in such a rad way, the bass line
0: oh so good, so iconic oh. that is like the the baseline of the 90s
2: <laughs> that i'll say that is a baseline that one of the most iconic baselines of the 90s one of the most immediately recognizable baselines that you hear from the 90s uh, yeah. along with space hogs in the meantime
0: yeah man um, we talked about that such a good baseline <laughs> hey i will also one more i gotta throw one more in there as a bassist. fleas baseline from soul to squeeze is one of my favorites.
2: It's that's my favorite Brad Chili Pepper song of all time.
0: Oh, dude. So mine too.
2: But okay, so speaking of how the industry, we mentioned earlier in the podcast how things are so different nowadays in terms of how people listen to music and how people create music um compared to the nineties. You mentioned also that this record, last flash, went platinum. And for a record that went platinum, it peaked at 33 on the U.S. Billboard chart, and the record went platinum. So I think that's kind of wild Yeah, that a record that did that well selling in the United States didn't peak higher than 33. I think that speaks a lot to how successful the music industry in general was, how many, people, how many records people were selling. And the single Cannonball was number 39 in the top 40 mainstream at uh, peak position, and number two on the modern rock tracks. So it did really well as a modern rock track.
0: I mean, that's crazy because, yeah, I mean... That is almost, it's almost like borderline, whether it's even considered a hit, it kind of, <laughs> yeah. it kind of kind depends on who you act to us. Yeah. To us, it is absolutely a hit. And it is obviously the Breeders biggest song. And it, you know, it was on MTV and it was, you know, not, not just MTV, but like, think about how, I don't know if you were like me back then, but I taped, every Sunday night I taped 120 minutes and so I could watch it on Monday after school because, you know, I couldn't really stay up from midnight till 2 AM on Sunday nights. But uh, yeah, I mean, the breeders were a staple on that, you know, and not just Cannonball. Were you into the album as a whole or or were they, they kind of on your, on your radar, but not like, I mean, a lot of bands were like that for me. So it's not. Yeah. They're in my
2: periphery. Right. So to speak for myself, I was a, Pearl Jam kid, I was a grunge kid in the 90s, right? In middle school. So for me, like sixth grade and seventh grade where I really came in to my own kind of forming my own opinions about what I liked musically. And Pearl Jam was at the top of that list. So for someone who had limited access to that world, like it was all this kind of like Pearl Jam and Pearl Jam's watershed, right? Um, right. So in eighth grade, I started getting more into punk rock. And when I started getting more into punk rock, I became more reactionary um, for a number of reasons. Um, so I'd kind of stay away from stuff that was. Um, I was just more interested in finding out punk rock music, and so like '93, that transition from eighth to ninth grade or whatever, I was kind of deeper into that space where I was learning. Well, I was more interested in like finding about No Effects and Rancid. Right,
0: dude. Um, we are like you and I had like the same exact trajectory <laughs> of like we should have. We should have been. I, I I feel like I like this stuff and not necessarily the breeders, but like the the entire world of music, we should have been celebrating the fact that it was like, that it was popular, but then yeah. I, I almost got too cool for it.
2: No, I well, know. I mean, you you know, I, I missed out on so many great, so many great bands in the nineties that were live and, and, and active <clears throat> because I was so hell bent on kind of who seven seconds was like, and I sort of missed a lot. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with who I was hanging out with, who I wanted to be in with. I mean, you know, when you're a kid that age, you're super impressionable, everything's awful, everything's great. Um, and so you're just trying your best to to tread water. Um, and I think my attachment to punk rock and my kind of eschewing of alternative music and the, the more broad alternative scene was was a result more of just me trying to like figure things out socially. That being said, I found a lot of great punk music, but I missed out on a lot of great uh, quote-unquote alternative indie music
0: right and and you know I like I was into it and shaped by it influenced it by it but as I saw it become so popular I needed to have something that was like a little more underground so I could feel cooler and I I got dude I'll never forget I still remember it I remember going to like a, a UCD place selling all my like Nirvana and like everybody, all, all these like iconic albums, selling them for like whatever two or three bucks a piece, so I could buy CDs from like Gutter the Mouth. Lookout Records catalog. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like yeah, exactly. I dude, I'm not even kidding. Guttermouth may have that Friendly People album. I think it's called that. May have been one of the CDs I bought, but yeah, exactly. I wanted to get Lookout Records. I wanted to get Fat Records. I wanted to get Epitaph, and I wanted yeah. to get whatever dr strange and and then we won't even get into a few years later when i had to have every ska album uh but you know that that's that's just so crazy when you're that you're that age and like you can't see past the oh this lame person in my class is wearing a uh nirvana shirt so i'm gonna get rid of (laughs) i'm gonna get rid of these cds now but anyway yeah the the breeders i actually kept my breeders cd because you liked it they weren't yeah, I liked it, and I I still like it. That I don't know if you're familiar. Do you know the song Divine Hammer?
2: I listened to it recently on the playlist that was circulated, and love I love that song. Focused on it because you said you liked it so much.
0: It it's definitely it sounds like it's recorded in another room or something. Like the way it's <laughs> recorded is so strange because it's it sounds very it sounds very lo-fi, but it's so catchy. And oh man, I love Kim Dill's voice.
2: Kim Dill's a great uh, voice. I just can't get over that intro that like and the video, you know, when they show her in the water. Uh-huh. From the kind of like a beat under the water. Just right. for a shot that I remember like distinctly through all my years. Just like when that, that, that's another thing about the video that made it stand out, at least for me, I guess to Spike Jones's and Kim Gordon's credit. Um, there are these shots that were just kind of like burned into my memory the opening of that video being one of those shots where they're in the water and the bubbles are coming out of their mouth and they're going, uh, ooh, uh, like that's yeah. so really cool.
0: Yeah. It's so awesome, man. Spike, dude, what would you get? I, I would give anything to make a music video with Spike Jones.
2: I would <laughs> I would give a lot. That's for sure.
0: <laughs> I know. Dude, you know what's crazy, too? I don't know. Maybe, maybe May has. A, I know Punchline never has. But have you ever thought about, like, hitting him up? No. <laughs> I mean, that's, what's funny is like, you never know. Like he did do a lot of like, you know, he's probably not going to, he probably doesn't even want to do music videos anymore or whatever, but like you never like a lot, a lot of things in life. Like I'm like, well, I never asked. Yeah, (laughs) I I never like made an effort to like make that happen. I'm just like, Oh no, there's no way that could ever happen. But like, you know, that's, what's kind of wild is like, I don't know. May May's pretty big band, man. You guys are pretty popular. Do you ever think of like reaching out to Spike Jones?
2: You know, Jacob's really into the, um the virtual reality world. So maybe if he can kind of like hit Spike Jones up with a very creative idea that would interest Spike Jones at this point in his career after he's done so much revolutionary right. work, you know, who knows? I'll talk to Jacob about it. Maybe in a year and a half or so you'll see a May video directed by Spike Jones and Jacob Marshall. Um, yeah. Where- would be rad, you know. On the topic of creative people coming up in the '90s, I wish we talked about like our age range, how we were kind of in this very impressionable age at a very important time in music. What if I was like a few years older though, and I was like a college kid in the Northeast and like the nine in 1992? That's something I fantasize a lot about, just being in the music scene as a college student at like NYU or Brown or something. You know, predictable like that unoriginal just being this person seeing these shows like the Pixies and the Breeders and Nirvana and Alice in Chains and you know you name it come through these very kind of small club levels I don't know I fantasize about that a lot I just think back you know
0: yeah it's wild it's wild to to think of yeah who people saw as if they like I, I think about the fact there's there's this dude in Pittsburgh who he's just like this eccentric promoter who's been promoting shows forever. His name's Manny. And he, like if you're from Pittsburgh and you play music, you know who Manny is. Mm-hmm. He's just th- this wild like character who's brought, you know, brought in every band that you could, but, but like the most obscure bands before they were huge. And yeah. it's always some kind of terrible story about how like uh modest mouse played at this, whatever, this rundown place. And then they were pissed because he like, they didn't pay him enough. So they threw a brick through his window or like, you know, Nirvana slept on his couch and blah, blah, blah. all this kind of like wild ass stories. Uh, But in Pittsburgh, he's like the dude that's probably seen every band when they were playing in front of 10 people and brought Mm -hmm. them in. I'm sure that he was at his doing the most shows ever at, at that time when things were just like, every band was just popping off. Yeah, uh, because there was this boom of signing every uh, band, every probably every band that Kurt Cobain had something to say about. Because you know the Breeders, like you know that you know that uh, Kurt Cobain loved Pod, and uh-huh. there's no way that didn't help. I mean, the fact that Kim Deal was in the Pixies probably helped. <laughs> but look at look at uh, Daniel Johnston. All it took was Kurt Cobain wearing a Daniel Johnston T-shirt, and that probably increase daniel johnston's uh record sales by one thousand. yeah <laughs>
2: just just a mention or a shirt wear is going to do it if, if it's kirk doing the wearing
1: what's up everybody i am finn mckenty host of the punk rock nba podcast part of the sound talent media podcast network my podcast is all about doing what you love for a living and every week i sit down and talk to people who have done exactly that
3: dive into the world of heavy metal with the brutally delicious podcast here we don't just talk music we welcome you into our heavy metal family join us for candid chats with legends and rising stars we go beyond the typical interviews exploring raw emotions and the life-altering impact of heavy metal so whether you're a diehard metal head or just curious join our family and let the headbanging begin with the brutally delicious podcast
2: Let's talk about the lyrics of this song.
3: yeah,
1: let's another talk about thing
2: it. that is in my mind, like I said, it's a quintessential 90s song, and I think the lyrics as well fit to this kind of description. I was reading them last night or uh, two nights ago, and I'm just like, you know, it's a great launching point to talk about lyrics and why some lyrics that don't seemingly make any sense relate. Um, That we can relate to in a a weird way and i think this is a perfect example of it so let's go
0: you know a lot of times you know when you're in a band and you're talking about lyrics i know i have a lot of conversations with steve about this over the years is like you have this borderline of do you want the lyrics to hit you over the head and make sense or do you want the lyrics to be abstract and -hmm. and assign your own meaning to it and this is a song where you absolutely need to assign your own (laughs) meaning to this and you know it's it's Want you, cuckoo, cannonball, in the sh- <laughs> in the shade, in the shade, in the shade, in the shade. I know you, little libertine. I know you're a cannonball. I'll be whatever you want. The bong in this reggae song. Like
2: <laughs> I never knew what she was saying, and I was like, I was like, that makes sense that I wouldn't know because I would never imagine that line to be in this song. The bong in this reggae song. That's so weird.
0: It it's. it's- spitting in a wishing well blown to hell crash I'm the last splash <laughs>
2: it's, i'll tell you what uh, my favorite lyric in the song is going to be either spitting in a wishing well which is the first line of the song which is rad um mm-hmm. a great image kind of an angsty 90s type thing you know yep. um and i know you little libertine yeah. everything else i'm just like i know you're a real cuckoo i mean that's like that reminds me of the magnetic magnetic fields
0: yeah bell and sebastian
2: uh Bella, Bella Sebastian, you're you're yep. correct. You're right on. I'm just wondering. I mean, obviously, you know, I don't want to sens- sensationalize or trivialize the problems that uh was it Kelly Deal that had more drug issues? I think that Kim had alcoholism, I think as wow. well. But I just right. wonder these songs kind of speak to this kind of environment as well in the nineties of just kind of like references to at least being a youngster reading about this stuff. They always mention drug references and just being this kind of like haze and writing these lyrics that just only makes sense when you're under the influence of something. I don't know. That's just me spitballing, Chris.
0: Yeah. Well, Hey, I never thought about it till you just said it. I can't believe I've never thought about this, but spitting in a wishing well is such a good lyric and such a good nineties lyric yeah. like that. That is exactly what I would do as this young <laughs> punk where this wishing well, where you're supposed to, you're supposed to go and throw a coin in and make a wish, but you know,
2: it's like that scene oh, in The Goonies that's really motivational when they're down underneath the, uh, in the, in the underground and they have this, right. like, who, what character has a really, uh, great monologue about, like.
0: I'm taking him back.
2: He made in a wishing well and he's taking it back and. Taking them all like, back. Like, whatever. I'm spitting the wishing
3: well regardless. You know, I always used to believe that when you threw your money in, it turned into your wish. you take no coins. And I'll take two coins and Jeez, you No, that's you not Wait,
1: wait, wait, easy. wait, 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 stop, stop. You, you can't left. do this. Why? Why? Because these are somebody else's
3: wishes. They're somebody else's dreams. Yeah. But you know what? This one. This one right here. This was my dream. My wish. And it didn't come true. So I'm taking it back. I'm taking them all back.
0: You may not know this, but I—I I, thanks to our producer, Matt, I do have, and I, I researched this, I found out some of what this song's about let's do it and it's it might be interesting to you as a guy you're you're into philosophy and obviously and you uh are very into literature and things like that and i thought this is very interesting what kim deal said about I'll, i'll read you what she said she said um as for the song's meaning, it's about Kim Deal's resentment of how she was treated by Frank Black towards the end of the Pixies' run, as well as inspired by a bi- biography of I don't know how to pronounce his name. Is it Marquez de, de Sade? It's Marquis de Sade. I, I, de Sade, because that's where I I thought maybe it was Sade because that's where the term sadism comes from, correct?
2: Yeah, I think because it's French, it's gonna be Marquis de Sade. But hey, don't I'm not trying to say that as an authority. I know it's, it's, I know it's Marquis because it's French. Um, de Sade, yeah. I believe that's the way you pronounce it, but. Um, If anyone's listening, I'm not trying to make a claim on that, but I think that's what it is. Okay, but I think um, you're right. Continue. <laughs>
0: uh, so, Kim Deal's quote is Cannonball is the first single. So, this is a good one to tell you about because Last Splash, the title of the album, comes from some of the lyrics in the song. My sister was reading a biography of Marquez de Sade, and I'm making fun of him. I'm saying, Oh, you little libertine, you're a real cuckoo. If you wanna to go to hell if you wanna to go to hell, come on, let's go to hell. Don't just jump in. Do a cannonball. It's when you tuck your legs up and you make the biggest splash you can. And you know what? I'm gonna be right behind you. I'm gonna be the last fucking splash. It's a commitment to it's a commitment to hell, I guess. Which is so cool. Like I, I and I didn't even know who do you know who Marquez? This, this odd
2: is, yeah, he's this notoriously what's the right word, a sinister, um, yeah. fear in French history that kind of represented, uh, the idea, the idea of a libertine, like a complete freedom to the point of abuse. Yeah, you um, become
0: sadistic because you have no limits to what yeah. you can do because you're, you're wealthy and you have no, no one could tell you not to do something. You know, so you just exactly. do whatever. So, so basically, basically <laughs> Trump.
2: <laughs> well, uh, yes, I just won't give that Trump that much credit in terms of meaning, in terms of uh, in terms of the oh, yeah. principle that informs a very abusive type of behavior. French um, social theorist named Michel Foucault wrote about Marquis de Sade, and also uh, Albert Camus, another French writer, wrote about Marquis de Sade as well. Because he represented this very French idea of liberty, but at the same time, you're right, right? The term um, sadism comes from this, from what this guy was doing in terms of keeping people chained up. Like people people were just entire objects to his own pleasure. They're just kind of a means to an end. However, his end was not rooted in any kind of, I don't know, goal, teleological purpose. It was just like for the purposes of his amusement. And so the idea here, going back to the song of Kim deal. Um, now I want to be clear on, did Kelly deal write this song or was it Kim deal
0: from, from what I'm getting from Kim deals quote, it's Kim deal at least wrote the lyrics. Yeah. Okay. She's, she's talking about how her sister was reading the book about Marquez Sade okay. Yeah. And so, and so she wanted to comment on that, I suppose so it's the
2: idea that she was kind of like going along, kind of like this, kind of like an uh, intentional kind of okay, let's do it, you know, let's do it, Marquis. Let's, let's
0: yeah, go on together. Right.
2: I'm gonna be right behind you. That's really interesting, and obviously we don't want to speculate, but I mean to 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 align yourself with Marquis side could be kind of problematic, right?
0: Like so, it would kind of be like in the same. In the same way that, I mean, because supposedly the guy, it's not supposedly, I think it's a fact. The guy was a pedophile. He was a
2: awful. He was all, yeah, he was an yeah.
0: abusive pedophile was what he was. So, like, it, it's kind of problematic in the same way it's like, okay, I really like the mo- the book and the movie Clockwork Orange. But then when you look at it, it's like, ah, uh, why, why do I like this? Yeah, uh, it, It's interesting, but it's also really fucked up. <laughs> I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Like, that's a, a good thing to talk about when it comes to the 90s. I feel like there was a lot of that, that stuff. There's a around. Lot, there's uh, a lot of um, that
2: going around. And I think, you know, another thing about the 90s <clears throat> in relation to now is how certain things were given a green light, given a pass um, that wouldn't fly now. I don't right. think this song would kind of fall into that. I'm not saying no. you just, I just think, okay, well, uh, the lens that we kind of look through 90s music now is obviously contextualized by, in a positive sense, the, uh, the raising of certain voices that were marginalized in the 90s, um, particularly, uh, obviously, um, women when it comes to representation of sex and sexism. And I think another thing, we have this band, I think in the 90s as well, you have this kind of thing where you, so many women are making rad music and kind of coming to the fore and, and claiming their own ground um, in this scene that has been so long and still is dominated um, by men. So you have the Deal Sisters, you have Liz Fair um obviously yeah the girl movement you have elastica a lot of these kind of women that are making really um great lasting music um that we're still obviously talking about today
0: don't forget about my favorite of all time this is this is the era that that really uh birthed the solo career of bjork as well bjork like,
2: yeah and a, and a league of her own
0: when it comes to music i when someone asked me who my favorite artist of all time is I always say Bjork and I even pronounce her name correctly. That's how much I like her. <laughs>
2: I'm, on, I'm, on, I'm over here like Bjork.
0: Yeah. That's how, I mean, I feel weird saying it correctly, but at some point I think, I think the first person, like I knew that's how you pronounce it. But I, was, I always felt like pretentious pronouncing it that way. But then um, I think it was uh, – do you know – do you happen to know Vince Ratty who was in Zoloft, the Rock and Roll Destroyer? He went on he, – he's a producer. I don't know if you've ever
2: – I know that we we played shows with Zola back the have was starting line in Zola They're from Pennsylvania, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. Point being that he's the first person I ever heard like pronounce it normal, even though I knew – and I was like, okay, I'm going to do that too. If Vince <laughs> is doing that, I'm doing that too. <laughs> but get, getting away from the point a little bit here being that – oh. The one other thing I'm going to talk about is she she straight up talking about how she was treated poorly by Frank Black, who so I guess is a fucking asshole.
2: You know, I've heard well this story and one other story.
0: Kim, it was a Kim from The Muffs.
2: Yes, Kim Shadock about how yeah. she stage stage dived, and he said yeah. or at least the manager came up to her afterward or the tour manager, whoever, uh, along, yeah, and said you can't do that. Those two stories. This one and then and that one kind of are at least enough for me to think, okay, at least, okay, well, okay, Frank Black, what's going on, you know?
0: Right, right. I mean, and, you know, it could just be, I, I don't know if you've, I mean, we don't, we're not going to name names on this podcast because it'd be so easy for me to do that. <laughs> but, you know, you meet these people along the way when you're in touring bands. And I will say this, 90, I would say 98.7% of the people that I've toured with over the years have been cool people and not not necessarily everybody is like my best friend but for yeah. the most part they're pretty cool people but every once in a while you meet that one <laughs> <laughs> where you're like fuck that guy <laughs> and and sometimes it's just an asshole but sometimes that that same person is is at the same time like a a savant in a way yeah but but maybe sometimes a symptom of that is that you're not necessarily a good person yeah. I mean, do you do you think do you think Kurt Cobain was a good person
2: I, I I wonder about this a whole lot I've um I read a book recently by who is the manager of Nirvana I forget his name he just wrote a book I don't know it's called Serving the Servant and he painted Kurt Cobain in a very very positive light he also really? painted Courtney Love in a very very positive light after that I read a book about Mudhoney and they painted a different, very different picture of Nirvana. Not necessarily a one saying that Kirk Cobain was kind of a, was, they weren't criticizing Kirk Cobain. They're just criticizing the Nirvana camp as being kind of, uh, you know, just all trying to protect Nirvana and because they're making money off Nirvana, all to say, they painted that band in a, in a kind of a, a critical light. And my last point to this kind of journal story, I apologize, is that when I did read another book about Kirk Cobain I heard that at one point he was taking 90 or 95% of the publishing royalties from Nirvana songs. Wow. Is that a, a dick move? I think it depends on who you ask and how they think about creativity. I think it's a little excessive considering how important Dave Grohl and Chris Novoselic were to the songs. All that said, the jury's out. I'm sorry. I can't... <laughs> Right, I mean, did
0: you see the i mean his own daughter made that or produced that h b o documentary i forget what it was called oh uh something what's it called montage of
2: heck Montage of heck
0: i mean that didn't paint him very in a very good light, and that was his own daughter making that, so yeah. i don't know i mean obviously she's uh you know i it, it it just made him look really bad, although he was he was very uh heavily addicted to drugs. So Yeah, I mean,
2: that's the thing. Like I don't and I can't obviously none of us can like even begin to uh estimate or guess how crazy his life must have been as this front man of Nirvana. Um and I don't want to speak a lot about, you know, people talking about the pressures on certain people in certain positions. I think that's entirely valid. Um and so how could you know who knows how it kind of impacted um uh his personality or his person that was already inflicted by you know his own life growing up so who knows but he seemed like he was just someone that uh, was trying to kind of negotiate his emotions and his anger in in a world that was that he could do whatever he wanted in you know
1: right
0: right but you know anyway Anyway, we we could we could talk about Kurt Cobain forever. We're we're talking about the Breeders. breeders. I sure, uh, I always like to think about on on this podcast. So, there's probably not that many episodes of podcasts about the Breeders out there.
2: That's a good point.
0: I'm kind of thinking to myself like, "Hey, at some point, maybe maybe Kim Dill will listen to this. She'll go, "Oh, there's a podcast." And and Kim Deal, I apologize if we talked about Nirvana too much. On here. We,
2: to- we want to apologize if we're if we're speaking too speculatively. Um, we're obviously going with very little evidence, but we love the band. We love the song. I listened to a podcast that Kim Deal did with Mark Marin, and she seemed like an amazing, just fun person just wanted to hang out and talk. I feel like Mark right. Marin, like, from what I remember, like, you know, she just wanted to talk and hang out about a lot of things. Uh how, are you a fan of Mark Marin's podcast? Do you listen to it?
0: I listen to it a lot. I listen to it. anytime there's a guest that I care to listen to. I skip the ones where I don't know who the guest is. But
2: um, yeah, yeah, same. But if if you haven't heard the Kim Deal one, um, it's a great listen. Uh, she's kind of silly in like a, a an endearing way, um, nice. and it's rad.
0: It's always really cool when the people that you like are actually cool people. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> uh, hey, you know we got to talk about this real quick. When when we're talking about Nirvana and things like that and was Kurt Cobain a cool guy or was he not whatever Dave Grohl seems like the coolest guy ever in music almost to a point where it's like all right dude we get it like <laughs> we get it you're cool you rock you're nice we get it like almost to the point like but I had to like stop myself from having that attitude about it because it'd be very easy not to but my point was you freaking didn't you tour with them?
2: Yeah, May did a tour with Nirvana. Oh, that's <laughs> that's me projecting my own fantasies. May did a tour with Foo Fighters and Weezer, which is just insane, insane. Yes. We got a call and I think it was during the. I must have been like 2007 or 2006 or something. We got a call uh, and we got on three dates because how do you pronounce that band? Kasabian. Kasabian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I always thought it was Kasabian. But. They dropped off. They had something happen. And so we got three shows um, through uh, Atlanta and Florida. And then we got three more uh, out to Texas. It was your typical Arena Rock experience in the sense that we didn't see too much of the the headliners. I saw Brian right. Bell walking around one time. Um, maybe Patrick Wilson. Never saw Rivers backstage. At one point we were walking around and me and Dave were walking just through the backstage area and and... Taylor Hawkins invited us into the dressing room. Uh, and uh, this was like just me just on cloud nine. Obviously Taylor Hawkins is a rad drummer. Right. Super cool dude. He was asking us what we thought about the show. I can't speak for Dave, but I was just kind of like super nervous and trying my best not to make a fool of myself. And I never met Dave, unfortunately, but they were super cool. Um, as a band, they were just, the, the tour touring crew was all rad. So back to this point about Dave Grohl, uh, and then we will get back to, the breeders you know he has this persona and i think what he's done for rock music um uh, beyond the um the 90s is maintained a very and been able to emphasize a very good um approach to to music in general that i think is not superior to other approaches but much needed to be maintained in this environment right now right i do think like he's dave grohl being dave grohl at this point and you know I think I think with you, I could go on and talk like, I'm, you know, with the idea that people listen to this, I only have positive things to say about Dave Grohl. If I wanted to be nitpicky, then I will talk to you about it on the phone one night.
0: (laughs) My my, my nitpicky thing that I'm not afraid to say about Dave Grohl and I love him. I love his music. I think he's the coolest dude ever. I'd love to sit down and talk to him and he's amazing. But the one thing I would say that I've heard brought up before is that his attitude about like, dude, you just got to get out there and rock. That doesn't necessarily like always work if I by work, I mean, if you want to be a career yeah. musician, it doesn't you have to like have like things like a team and yeah. a plan and uh, some luck and whatever and it doesn't that approach doesn't always work when you weren't in nirvana
2: yeah <laughs> so
0: that would be my one critical thing i would that's say
2: one thing i mean that's honestly what i would have said to you in a bar one night it's just like okay well it's almost anachronistic at this point because in one sense like if you want to be successful it's not as romantic as that um right. yeah i think he has the the privilege of hindsight and massive success on his side, so he can speak to this experience that is his, but it's not everyone's. And like I said, um, I think ethically and philosophically, his voice needs to be continuously um, emphasized. However, right. in terms of the kind of experience people have these days, um and and music and touring, um, it's just not the same. You and I came up in this, as well, like in the Playing music professionally in the early 2000s was a very golden era for bands in our genre, at our level, because things were going really well. But that quickly ended. You know, like when 2007 and eight and nine came around, things kind of tapered off a little bit. So I think everything needs to be thought of in terms of when it was being said, contemporarily speaking. And I think Dave Grohl's experience was a unique one, an influential one and a positive one. Um, But yeah, it's just not, it's not as simple as having an attitude
3: right
0: for
2: sure um for sure.
0: and what's cool is that just like just like you and I continually do and try to do is yeah maybe the in the worlds of music that May and Punchline have been involved in uh maybe there's been this ebb and flow and this wave where things come into style and things go out and whatever but the the important thing is to Stay true to what you love mm-hmm. continue finding a path to to continue making music and uh and not have to stop doing that and just like just like we have been part of things that have risen and fallen and come back and 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 went out and things like that you have to I feel like in the same way the breeders yeah the the high tide of that their world of music may have been in the 90s but they have they have also had successful music careers going they just released a new album last year um they're always going to have that between the breeders themselves and the pixies and things like that you have they'll always have people interested in what they do and then it's just on them to make cool music, (laughs) you know, that's
2: a a side project of the Pixies and Throne Muses to think about this band as a side project. is really crazy. They're able to then record, you know, Last Splash in 93 and make such an impact on the music scene. Um, And I think, you know, uh, our experience is limited. I would love to be able to talk with people that were around that world to to speak to things that they were going through and having to deal with uh, that we don't really have a have an in on. I mean, they released their last record in 2018. That said, um, yeah, all nerve. Um, which right. I have not spent much time with because I think it's another whole conversation about how music means something based on when it's heard and where it's heard and how old you were or where you were. Right. Um, and I think for us, seeing this video for Cannonball in 1993 and just being, for whatever reason, uh, ways that we understood or maybe didn't understand mesmerized and kind of floored by what we were seeing and what we were hearing i mean that yeah. drum beat was just like the kind of focus on the hi-hat and the hi-hat stand that roll that goes into the chorus that's kind of like followed by the the guitar kind of like scraping the like uh, strings i don't know what you call it like a chug whatever i don't know what it is uh-huh. but that stuff is, is really rad and that was like those are stylistic hinge points linchpins uh, for a lot of bands moving forward they were doing this stuff that was very very uh influential um uh, that all came out of this era of, of music in the 90s all, dude, all the that, music
0: dude cannonball has since you're bringing it up so many things that are signature like most songs you're lucky if you have that one signature thing mm-hmm. about it but this song it has ooh mm-hmm. to start it out it has that the yeah the 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 Symbol and stand thing, the beat that you're talking about. Uh, it has the, yeah, the drum fill that goes into the chorus. It has, oh, well, the chorus itself, the very distorted, Great. where you can't, you Dude, don't even really understand what she's saying. There's so many.
2: One thing that I, and Demons, I've, I've from day one, I was just really into distorted everything, distorted vocals. Yep. I think that's another thing we we see this happening in a mainstream sense. I should say, on a song that had success in the mainstream, um, you know, like, that's super cool to me. I think the guitar line, that... da, 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 da like Yeah. So, that's, when you hear that, you immediately know. So, again, to your point, you have these moments that occur in the song. The song is only three minutes and 36 seconds. And you have... It's almost like that Def Leppard song photograph, where every part of the song is a hook, in this sense, every part of the song is something that we remember and we can see in other places after the song was released.
0: I mean, I didn't even say the bass line. I didn't I mean when you're Yeah, the guitar, the bass everything about this song is a hook. Everything about this song is a, it's oh man, what a what a perfect song. Kim Dill, if you're listening right now, you wrote a perfect song. And what I will say is I don't know if Kim Dill is listening. If I were Kim deal. If I saw there was a podcast about (laughs) specifically about cannonball, I'd probably listen to it, but Kim deal. Here's what I want to say. And Zach, I'll give you a chance to say something to Kim deal too, if you have something to say, but here's what I would say. Hey, I was a young kid when this came out. I was not like a college, like a, a college age person or like a person who I didn't even know who the Pixies were. Yeah. And this song came out and I loved it. And, uh, instantly bought the cd uh it was a buzz clip at the time on mtv i believe it like the same time as like linger and i think maybe loser (laughs) uh or i don't know i that i just i just grouped those songs together and those are amazing songs too that we could talk about some other time but you know you made something that in my uh, you know my opinion is better than than anything that the Pixies yeah. did. I like the Pixies too, but like uh, the, this is the, the, you know, one of the greatest songs of the nineties. We always talk on this podcast about whether the song was a one hit blunder, meaning it was a one hit wonder <laughs> and that whoever that artist was shouldn't have had anything, which I would put like, I would, I would put like, aqua and tom cochran and, Matt <laughs> and stuff like that but but or is it one hit thunder which is the name of the podcast i would say this song is about as one hit thunder as it gets and i'm sure that you would agree
2: yeah uh honestly building on what you just said i agree with everything um and we talk about this song as being us on the podcast as a one hit wonder but in, and i think i can speak for chris and i both it's not a one hit anything it's, a, it's something that's kind of we heard once and we kept the feeling the song gave us was something we kept chasing ever since we heard songs like cannonball and like it and songs like it that came out in the nineties. And it's one of the reasons why we do or have done our best to build a life that revolves around music in some sense songs like these, when we hear songs like cannonball that we hear when we're eighth graders Um doing this awesome stuff we don't understand, uh, but we get at the same time. Um so yeah, you wrote a great song. You everyone in the band at the time um wrote a great song. Hats right. off, Kim Deal and the breeders.
0: Hell yeah. You come back around all the all these years later I come back around and I think I like the song even more. Yeah. like it's like having a conversation with this about the intricacies of the song makes me respect and love it even more the album last splash is awesome uh and i don't know just
2: well i'm gonna go listen to the song again oh yeah man yeah cool well it's nice
0: talking to you zach
2: so much fun chris thanks for having me
0: yeah thanks for coming on man when it
3: gets hard this has been
1: one hit thunder one hit thunder is produced by matt kelly as part of the geekscape network and hosted by chris fafalios of the band's punchline pack and another cheetah you can hear the punchline song darkest dark off their album lion playing underneath me right now punchline will be playing anti-fest on march 28th in pittsburgh featuring annie flag suicide machines and many other great bands visit punchline.com for tickets as well as news merch and other upcoming tour dates special thanks to our guest zach of the bands demons and may demons new record will be out this summer under spartan records check out their music on spotify and follow them on instagram demons band also may just announced two shows with one hit thunder friends and hopeful future guests juliana theory at the music hall of williamsburg in brooklyn on june 13th and the roxy in hollywood on june 27th tickets are now available on may's Instagram. Let us know your thoughts on the show by emailing us at onehitthunderpodcast at gmail or contacting us on all of our social media linked in the show notes. And be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting apps. We'll be back next week with another episode of One Hit Thunder. When life
3: gets so bleak and scary, Polaroid will be necessary when it gets hard.
0: The
2: Geekscape
3: Network. Ready for a head-bangingly good time? Dive into the world of heavy metal with the Brutally Delicious podcast. Here, we don't just talk music, we welcome you into our heavy metal family. Join us for candid chats with legends and rising stars. We go beyond the typical interviews exploring raw emotions and the life-altering impact of heavy metal. So whether you're a die-hard metal head or just curious, join our family. And let the headbanging begin with the Brutally Delicious podcast. Out there. Yes, we out there, everyone. I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McClain. Together we host None But the Brave, a podcast dedicated to the music and career of Bruce Springsteen.
0: Bruce and e Street Band are on tour right now for the first time in six years, and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi-weekly
3: episodes. We've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests, including rock journalist Warren Zanes and Stephen Hyden, Backstreet's magazine founder Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Nemo the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road.
1: Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you.